0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller.
1: Sometimes a day of violence can change everything. Hundreds of people were killed. They pull people out of their homes, especially prominent people, business people, and political leaders, and they um, make them leave town. Some of them they throw in jail first, others they march straight to the train station. Suzanne Metler is a professor
0: in the Department of Government at Cornell University, and she's describing one such day a day that is emblematic of a shift in the way
1: Americans viewed race. They staged what was essentially a coup d'etat. So it started early in the morning. They had all of these paramilitary groups, groups called the Red Shirts and the White Government Union, who all marched through the city, and they went straight to the offices of this Black-owned newspaper, and they burned it down. And they stood there. I have... Photographs that I gather that we have in the book. They stood there jeering as it's burning down. The day was in 1898, just
0: after the November election, when the Democrats took something they had long wanted, Mettler says, control over the city of Wilmington, North Carolina. Why did the Democrats want control of Wilmington? Well, we'll get to that. And the reason underpins many of the racial tensions that we now see exploding around us. But first, The way in which this coup d'etat happened tells us a lot about the ways in which democracy itself can start to unravel. In the late 1890s in Wilmington, Democrats were struggling. African-Americans, many of whom were Republican, as Abraham Lincoln had been, well, they had banded together with some populist whites on a fusion ticket, and the traditional power structure was being squeezed out. America may have been a democracy officially, But there were some people who decided that elections and control, they had to be won, whatever the cost. Democrats tried to intimidate opponents to stop them from voting. They used harsh racial rhetoric. They stuffed ballot boxes. And finally, after doing fairly well in the elections of 1898, they decided
1: to close the deal. Then by the the end of the day, at gunpoint, all of the people who are elected officials who are the, the fusionist on um, the fusionist ticket, both the African-American Republicans and the white populace, are made to resign. And then a new government is installed, local government is installed by the Democrats.
0: This moment is not one that most people learn about in history class, but it came at a time when democracy was changing profoundly and was incredibly stressed, says Mettler, who, along with Robert Lieberman, is the author of Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Mettler and Lieberman say there have only been a few times when American democracy has been on the verge of changing into something else entirely. During the 1790s, in the lead up to the Civil War, during the 1890s, when Wilmington, North Carolina was altered so completely, during the Great Depression and Watergate, and they argue, right
1: now. Both Rob and I are professors of American politics and we've taught the introduction to American politics course over our careers. And we were finding that, you know, American politics was really becoming transformed in the past decade or so. We were kind of struggling to catch up, noticing this rising polarization, for example, rising economic inequality. But then it was the 2016 election that really brought things to a head because we found that even topics that we thought were long since settled in American politics, like, oh, um, views about freedom of the press or the integrity of elections, that you know we don't have fraud in American elections in any significant way, even these things were coming into question. Mettler says she
0: started talking to colleagues who studied how democracies are made and unmade in other
1: countries. And they would say things like, well, democracies, they come and they go. And, you know, we've had a good run in the United States. <laughs> and I began to realize I needed to learn a lot more from them about, about what they knew. What Mettler and Lieberman eventually concluded was that democracy in America can
0: be weakened by four factors, economic inequality, expansive presidential power, political polarization, and racism or nativism. When more than one of those escalates at one time, democracy is under threat. When Richard Nixon was in the White House, Watergate was definitely a crisis. But only presidential power was on the rise at that moment. In the 1850s, leading up to the Civil War, democracy was weakened by growing racism, increasing political polarization, and economic inequality. But now, Suzanne Mentler says, we're seeing something new. All four of the factors that can weaken democracy have taken hold. And she's not the only one who's been noticing this. The magazine The Economist, which ranks democracies all over the world every year, noted in 2017, the US no longer ranks in the top tier of democracies, what they call full democracies. Instead, we're now a so-called flawed democracy like Botswana, like Argentina. The four threats that Mettler identifies are now in full view in a way that's hard not to notice. First, we've experienced decades of rising inequality with a yawning gap between top earners and everybody else. Second, the executive branch has sought to assert
1: itself in a number of different ways. Recently, for example, there has been the firing of various inspector generals by President Trump. So these people who should be there as the watchdogs of of good government, and they're being let go. Third, racial tensions have skyrocketed. So things have now, you know, come to a head in a really big way after the, the death of, of George Floyd at the hands of police. And fourth, partisan disagreements have clearly escalated. The armed militia going into the state capitol in Michigan, such that the legislature had to disband and is not meeting, and death threats on the governor there. These things which seem mind-bending, like you know, you think you're reading a novel about some country in a faraway place and time, and yet it's happening right here in the United States. And it's the kind of thing that writing this book has given us a vocabulary and a, an analytical framework for thinking about these things.
0: Mettler says when democracy is in peril, winning is generally valued at all costs. Politics becomes mortal combat, she argues. The thinking is, my group is good, and whatever it takes to make sure that they are in charge, well, that's what needs to be done. Which brings us back to Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898, and what that moment can teach us. In the 1890s, Wilmington had become a great success, an emblem of the New South, a place that had risen out
1: of the devastation of the Civil War and transformed into something else. It had a growing black middle class, and there were African Americans who'd been elected to the local city council and other local government posts. And so it seemed like a place where democracy was on the rise. And then if you pan out and look at North Carolina as a state, it also seemed to have a really vibrant democracy. And what was happening at that point in time during the 1890s is that The African-Americans, who tended to affiliate with the Republican Party at that time, they were very active in politics. And then you had the rising populist party, which attracted, um, in particular, a lot of white, lower and middle income people. They were very active in politics. And they began to realize that if they would join forces, they could actually beat the Democrats, who were the long-standing party that had been the party of, of white supremacy, and so they begin to ally forces on what they called the fusionist ticket, and by doing that in some of these elections in the mid 1890s, they won the majority in the state legislature in North Carolina. Then they won the governorship, and there in Wilmington, they were also winning uh, several local positions as well.
0: And you you note that like uh, President William McKinley chose an African-American collector of customs uh, for the port in Wilmington, North Carolina, which made it so that this guy, the the collector of customs, was earning more money than the governor of North Carolina. I mean, so things had really, really changed uh, since the Civil War.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, there were all of these Black-owned businesses in Wilmington. There was a Black-owned newspaper, The Daily Record, which was a daily newspaper, and that made it the only one of its kind in the United States. So in all of these ways, you know, democracy really seemed to be on the rise of Wilmington being the epitome of, you know, a growing multiracial democracy. Hmm.
0: But then, as we talked about, uh, things obviously turned incredibly violent after Election Day. Uh, people are killed. People are run out of town. Basically, uh, the government is changed by force. You, you called it a coup d'etat. It seems, though, like there are higher authorities than Wilmington, North Carolina. And so if rightfully elected people are being thrown out, ballot boxes are being stuffed, where is the state in this coup d'etat?
1: Well, this is what was so striking. African Americans in Wilmington made pleas to the federal government and there was no response. President McKinley did not respond. He was really thinking he had to wait for the governor of North Carolina to ask him to respond. And that governor, who had himself been elected a couple of years previous on the fusion ticket, felt that he could not um, because he was hemmed in by the rise of the Southern Democrats. Um, And so he felt like he just couldn't do it, and then what happens subsequently is that you know that the the, uh, the next presidents who are also in the Republican Party look the other way as well, Theodore Roosevelt and Taft, and um, you know this is a party that. When you go back to you know, the Reconstruction era, they had really been looking out for the rights of African-Americans in the South, and it was, they thought it was a political opportunity for them as well to make real inroads in the South. They, by the early 20th century, had decided to seek their fortunes elsewhere, and they really abandoned African-Americans and looked the other way.
0: You uh, look at this issue of democracies in crisis, and obviously we're talking about a a crisis here. But this is also happening in the 1890s at a moment that a lot of people think of now as the, you know, the Gilded Age, that we kind of read about in textbooks when we were in school. At this moment, where you've got, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and like these very incredibly rich people, while a lot of people are not at all rich and are suffering. How did this wealth inequality factor into what you're talking about, which is a little bit more about racial inequality?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting to look at these dynamics. And I have to say, I see parallels to our own time. In the foreground, this is a drama about racial inequality. And you see these uh, Southern Democrats who are are stoking racism among poor whites and bringing them back into the democratic party because they they have these these real racist attitudes but what's happening in the background not really hidden but just gets less attention is that wealthy elites are really pursuing their interests and they don't care about democracy. So that's happening in the South because a lot of these um, folks who are running the Democratic Party, they were the elites of their time. These are prominent business people. Many of them were highly educated. Among them were folks who'd gone to Harvard. And then also in the Republican Party, most of its strength is coming from the North, from wealthy industrialists, as well as their support by working people But the industrialists in 1896 are really afraid of William Jennings Bryan, who is the opponent, a real populist opponent running um, as the Democrats' candidate for president that year. And that election was more costly as a percentage of GDP than any election since then, most expensive in American history. And it was because these wealthy people, these industrialists, really channeled a lot of money into it. It was a real rise of the use of money in politics to try to sway the outcome. And um, and so that's what often happens, I think, is that we don't tend to notice as much what's happening on the part of the rich who are mobilizing, because what's going on in the foreground is this whole effort by politicians to stoke people's racism, to stoke that conflict over who belongs as a member of the political community that we saw then in the 1890s. We're seeing it again now.
0: So if you have a situation that you're describing in the 1890s where the rich have an outsized like ability to shape elections and rightfully elected governments are just being completely overthrown in in various places how is it that uh that crisis resolved and did not lead to
1: you know the american democracy being completely undone ah this is a a great question What we found happened in the 1890s, and it's a repeated theme throughout our book, we find this happens in one period after another. The settlement has to do with putting people of color back in their place with restoring racial hierarchy or perpetuating racial hierarchy that already exists and two polarized parties that couldn't agree on much else come together around that. Mm. So that's essentially what happens by the time you get to 1898 and coming out of this coup in Wilmington that African Americans lose their rights in the South, um, become disenfranchised and then lose civil rights, etc., and then the system marches on, but democracy has been dramatically curtailed in significant ways.
0: So are you saying that um, for white people, there's able to be some kind of bargaining on certain other things, whether it's economics or you know labor or whatever. But then you have like whole groups of people who are just like disenfranchised
1: for decades. Exactly. That's very well put. Okay okay so
0: they're able to they're able to do some negotiation so some people do get something who don't have a lot, but then there's whole groups of people who just don't get anything.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, as we got into the early 20th century, the populace, the farmers movement, which had seemed to really have lost out when you look at their record in the late 19th century, by the early 20th century, they do accomplish some of their goals, ultimately through federal legislation. And yet this all happens in a country where we now have um, very rigid racial segregation, um, really American apartheid. And so African-Americans are, are totally excluded from those gains. Hmm.
0: We're going to take a quick break here. We're talking about how American democracy has been tested in the past and why it might be undergoing its single biggest test right at this very moment. Suzanne Mettler is a co-author of Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. And she's a professor of government at Cornell we will have more on what happened in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina on our website that's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Frank Wills was working as a security guard one night in 1972 when he noticed something odd, doors that were propped open. It was odd, but only after Wills closed the doors and then noticed that once again they were tampered with, did he really start to be concerned. What Wills was onto turned out to be so consequential, he would play himself in a movie about the event. It was a non-speaking role, and Wills pretty much did in the film what he had done in real life, serve as a security guard at the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. Car 727, Car 727, open door at the Watergate office building. In both real life and in the movie, All the President's Men, Wills had a role that marked the beginning of the end of Richard Nixon's
1: presidency. He's using the powers of his office to do things to try to enhance his chances to win elections and the Republican parties generally and for personal gain.
0: That's Suzanne Mettler, a professor of government at Cornell University and co-author of the forthcoming book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. She notes that presidential authority had
1: grown in the previous decades, mostly for legitimate reasons. And so Franklin D. Roosevelt becomes president during the Great Depression, and he really needs to try to respond to, you know, the very high unemployment rates, the great need in the country. And so he finds ways to grow executive power in order to do that.
0: But that more muscular presidency was not, as Nixon demonstrates, always used for reasons that serve the public good which was what led to a crisis of democracy in the early 1970s and ultimately the resignation of the president. Mettler argues there are four threats to American democracy that have popped up at different times in our history. And Watergate was emblematic of one of them, the expansion of presidential power. The others, growing economic inequality, increasing political polarization and rising racism or nativism, they have surfaced at various times and occasionally, as in the 1850s, right before the Civil War, and in the 1890s, they've been in combination with each other. But this is the first time in American history, Mettler and her co-author Robert Lieberman argue, that all four crises have converged at the same time. And that is worth taking note of because the question becomes, well, what can this democracy withstand? How many simultaneous crises? Of course, Political polarization, and racism, and inequality, they're not really anything new, but they are rarely all ascendant at the same moment. In the 1970s, for example, incomes were far more equal than they are now. On the political polarization front, the vast majority of Americans said they didn't really care if their child married a person of the opposite political party. Now that statistic has flipped. Most Americans would be unhappy if their child married someone from a different political tribe. And that rising polarization actually correlates, Mettler says, with rising racial tensions,
1: unlike in the 1970s. You still had the same kind of racist attitudes present in the population at that point in time. And we're you know, just some years beyond the achievements of civil rights. Um, but what's key is how people are organized into the political party system. So, in that era, like through the middle of the 20th century, really, you had both liberals and conservatives in both major parties, in both the Democratic and Republican parties. And you had people who were more liberal and more conservative on race in both parties. What's happened since then is that the two parties have become sorted out in terms of who their grassroots membership is. And during the middle of the 20th century, most white Southerners were allied with the Democratic Party. That's really now shifted almost entirely toward the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, particularly since the 1980s, has become a party that's more embracing of what we call racial resentment, which is a kind of contemporary racism. So in the 1970s, it wasn't that those attitudes weren't there in the population, but they were not sorted out between—the two parties were not distinguished on those attitudes.
0: So when we think about the parallels between President Nixon and President Trump— Um, My sense is President Nixon did know who his enemies were and like who he wanted to go after. And he wanted at least to use the levers of power in government to try to uh, crack down on those people. He didn't like what the press was saying about him. Does that
1: feel to you like a close parallel? Actually, it it is quite a close parallel in that uh, both were using the powers of their office to advance themselves and their party politically. And so that is quite similar. I mean, Trump goes beyond that in that he's also using the powers of his office for his personal gain. Uh, For example, the violations of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution is the kind of thing you really didn't see with President Nixon. President Trump has really kept his own businesses going while he's been in the White House. And those sorts of conflicts of interest um, have not been a concern to him or to his party.
0: And why do you think that is so, like, my understanding is, you know, Lyndon Johnson, I think, had significant, some significant financial interest when he came into office. And he really did, you know, separate himself from those interests. Why is it that we live in a different enough time that President Trump was able to say, you know, I'm going to let my kids handle this. I'm still related to my kids. And and here we go.
1: What's different about our time is that uh, President Trump is empowered by a Republican Party that is dramatically different from the Republican Party uh, that Nixon belonged to in the 1970s. And really, I think it's more important to look at that party than it is to look at Trump in order to understand contemporary politics. It's a party that has become radicalized over the past few decades. We live in a time period now that is very competitive between the two parties. In every election, either party stands to win control of the House of Representatives And the Senate's quite competitive, depending upon which seats are up. Um, The presidential election's very competitive. And that's been the case since 1980. And so the parties have been really trying to fight tooth and nail. And the Republican Party went from being really in the minority on Capitol Hill to then having a strategy that its leaders embraced of saying, we've got to find a way to become uh, dominant around here, uh, or to at least be competitive in elections. And we're going to do it by distinguishing ourselves from the other party, by calling them out every opportunity we get, and we'll create some opportunities, and so on. The bottom line is that they have wanted to win at all costs. And they have been willing to look the other way on things like Trump's violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution and um, kinds of corruption that have emerged in this administration around um, the president's businesses. So when you think
0: about, um, you know, you— You write about this idea of that we're living in a moment of crisis where kind of democracy is being redefined, like right in this moment. Um, And then add to that a crisis, maybe within a crisis, which is we're in the middle of a pandemic. There probably hasn't been one this bad in 100 years. How does the pandemic factor in to the story that you're telling?
1: Yeah, I think that the pandemic um, is a complicating factor that can exacerbate some of the um, the threats to the pillars of democracy. So, for example, when we look at free and fair elections, and here we are going into this the election this November, um, right. it was already... Under threat because the president, you know, we know that he asked the, the the head of a foreign nation to help him to interfere in the election. And then his party was willing to tolerate that and look the other way. But now we add on to that people's concerns about voting because of the pandemic. You know, there's just a lot more opportunity for um, politicians to then play with electoral rules and procedures in ways that could help them to gain advantage. Um, Race and racial tensions are also such a
0: through line in your argument about crises in American democracy. And the massive protests around the death of George Floyd uh, seem to fit into that. It certainly is a time when these tensions are not just there, but they're really raw and they're very exposed. And it's astonishing to me that here we've got
1: one crisis on top of the next. That's right. You know, we're seeing such a a confluence of factors added on to each other. So, you know, you already had the four threats, as we've been discussing, and then you add on to that the pandemic um, and the recession that's following from the pandemic, and both of those being felt particularly in communities of people of color. And then you add on top of that, um, you know, highlighting once again police brutality, which has been a long, ongoing problem. And this is like a powder keg that is, you know, ready to explode. And that then this presidency, the Trump administration, is willing to respond to that With force. And that's where, you know, we are really seeing before our eyes the consequences for democracy. So the harm to the rule of law is very evident here. We're seeing a lot of force being used on people. Certainly, there's been a lot in the headlines um, about people looting and protesters damaging property, but there has been considerable use of force by police in response to even peaceful protesters in cities all over the country. The president is also, and his his party, really harming the legitimacy of the opposition, which of course has been a persistent theme um, over these last few years. But um, the right to protest is something that is, you know, it's in the First Amendment, the right to assemble, the right of freedom of speech, that is um, respected in the United States, um, and so there's always, you know, a fine line that government needs to walk to be able to to uphold that and to respect that. And uh, I would say there's been real violation of that in recent days, and we're seeing, um, you know, all of these instances of people being um, pepper sprayed and tear gas used on the, on peaceful protesters. On journalists, which is, you know, violating freedom of the press. So we're seeing harm to the integrity of rights here as well. So we're at a very crucial point right now for the future of American democracy. And, you know, the question is, are we going to go further down a road toward authoritarianism uh, and, you know, maybe having a country that will have outward appearances of being a democracy, still having elections, still having a Congress that meets, but where its meaning in very crucial ways is hollowed out. Or this time, can the United States handle things differently than it has before? I mean, we're on the cusp right now of, you know, what we've seen in the past, like in the, after the 1890s, where the settlement Uh, involves undermining rights of some group. And it has most often been people of color whose status has been, they've been put back in their place. Some former hierarchy has been reestablished. Is that going to happen again? Or this time, can it be different? This time, can Americans um, together really uphold our highest ideals of uh, all Men, all people are created equal, and uh, this has always been an aspiration for us. But you know, it has inspired reform movements and um, and popular movements throughout our history. Um, can we reclaim that and really try to advance toward more robust democracy at this point?
0: Do you think that we will come out of uh, this cur- of the of the pandemic with democracy? in a substantially different place, you know, reinvented, or maybe it's not going to be democracy? I mean, is there going to be a reinvention of government because of what we're seeing now?
1: Well, I'm very concerned about it. You know, if we look at the pillars of democracy already during Trump's first term, we've seen damage to free and fair elections um, and damage to the rule of law. The president has been treating the Department of Justice as if it's his own you know, um, personal agency that's supposed to defend him and look out for his political and personal interests. Um, and we've seen a great exacerbation of the kind of us versus them polarization in politics and with it the uh, undermining of the legitimacy of the opposition. I mean, you think about just in 2016, when Trump was running for office and there were always the chance of lock her up about his opponent, Hillary Clinton, that absolutely undermines the principle of legitimacy of the opposition. And, you know, now with the, the pandemic, things are becoming polarized around questions about whether you wear a face mask or not, for example my concern is that these things are are continuing to intensify. And I think that this election is is going to be a very conflictual one. I think we may see violence around the election, regardless of which side wins. I think there may be doubts about the winner that will, um, you know, no matter who wins. And some of those doubts will be stoked and they, they will be stoked um particularly by um Trump if he loses and um by by others in his party um, and if he wins um, and is inaugurated for a second term, I think that then we will see more harm to democracy. Because here you will have a president who, you know, was impeached by the House of Representatives, but his own party um, stood up for him and acquitted him in the Senate trial. Then he wins reelection, so he will be unfettered. And that's when I think we could really see damage to the integrity of rights. Um, to civil liberties and civil rights and voting rights. And uh, we will really continue da- down that path of moving toward what, scholars call a competitive authoritarian regime. So in other words, it will still have the outer look of democracy in some ways. We'll still have elections. Congress will still meet. It won't be disbanded. We won't have tanks in the street. And yet in some really meaningful and substantial ways, it will not be a democracy.
0: Suzanne Mettler is a professor in the Department of Government at Cornell. She's the co-author with Robert Lieberman of Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.